this week on the Back Table Podcast. The beautiful marriage of specialties here is really unique. And I think it's really, as we are all compensated more similarly now with being employees of hospitals and whatnot, I think this whole division in specialties is hopefully going to be in the past. So this is a great space where everyone, you know, my close friend is, you know, an interventional radiologist, a hematologist, and a pulmonologist taking care of these patients. And, um, you know, I, I think that's a, such a unique part of this. So involve your colleagues. When you're building a program, it's amazing how everybody complements each other. Um, set up a follow-up clinic. Make sure that you realize the care for these patients continues after the hospitalization. And then you're going to put yourself on the map because this is a hot field right now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com. RADPAD was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your career on your health or anything else. Trust RADPAD radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See RADPAD.com for more information. Contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and no-brainer radiation protection cap. And make sure to let them know that you heard it on Backtable Podcast. This is Sabine Dond as your ghost this week, and I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, interventional cardiologist and a great friend of mine from school, Dr. Eric Szenski, coming to us from Harvard. Welcome, Eric. Thanks, Sabine. appreciate the invitation to be here today. Oh, thank you. No friend. Yes. We're happy to have you, man. I mean, I kind of, uh, I kind of want to know myself and for our listeners, I mean, how did you come from being a friend with an average guy like me to now being this BMOC, I mean, big deal research giant, um, just an outstanding leader in your field, um, where you are today. Yeah. You know, I would say we were more acquaintances than friends, but no, I'm just, <laughs> no, you've always been a good friend of mine. And for the, the listeners, uh, Sabine and I were, um, medical students together and, and good friends throughout medical school. But, you know, it's been a interesting, uh, past, you know, four or five years in particular, because I, you know, didn't really know I was going to go into the peripheral vascular space. Uh, I was in, always interested in interventional cardiology and kind of, you know, got interested during my fellowship. Uh, primarily from one of my mentors, Ken Rosenfield over at Mass General. And in the vascular space, I ended up staying on for some extra training in, in the peripheral vascular space. And then that really has become the primary focus of my career. And so, you know, I was fortunate to get recruited over to Bath Israel to start, uh, kind of restart the endovascular interventional program and then um, continue my research in the vascular space. But, you know, I, I don't think if you had asked me five, seven years ago, this is what I'd be doing, I, I could even answer that question with, um, any certainty of, you know, of where I am right now. So been a, been a great run and I appreciate the, uh, the kind intro, but, and, and no matter where I go high or low on the totem pole, you're still going to be my friend. So don't worry. <laughs> now we all, we all knew you'd make it big, Eric. We all knew that, you know, so, you know, we're, we're happy over here. We're going to be talking about, you know, PE intervention and we we've talked about PE intervention in the past, um, on back table. And then we've kind of focused on, you know, large bar thrombectomy, but Kind of wanted to go back. I mean, PE intervention's been around for a while now um, with other devices. And, and kind of, you know, I really want to know how your practice approaches it. I mean, um, you know, just to start off, I mean, how do you, you know, how do you classify patients with PE? 
Yeah, well, just a little bit of context, uh, you know, how I got into this clinically and, and as well on the research side. But, you know, I was back in my training at Mass General when um, Ken Rosenfield and some other really multidisciplinary specialists at Mass General decided that we should um, have a multidisciplinary program for the management of PE, which became the PE response team or the PERT team. And I know we'll talk about that in a little bit. And so, you know, that was kicking off when I was finishing my general cardiology fellowship and the, you know, the downward kind of flow of, of work was that I was in charge of doing the off-hour echoes for people in the emergency room with PEs to help stratify. Um, and, but, you know, the exposure to PE was really helpful as that became a part of my career because I've seen all flavors of PE and, you know, really treatments changed dramatically over the last eight years. So with that context in mind, you know, I think one thing that we still are getting our heads around is how to classify um, PE. And I think we've kind of got a good criteria in terms of classifying massive, submassive, and then you can call it non-submassive. Some people call it low risk, um, but really understanding particularly within that submassive group, what is high risk? Um, you know, in the AHA criteria right now, it's kind of poorly defined. You know, we look at submassive and then um, that means that you have any evidence of RV dilation on either a CT scan or RV dysfunction, I should say, on CT scan or echo or any signs of RV necrosis uh, with uh, biomarkers of BNP or, or cardiac enzyme troponin are elevated. Uh, but the European guidelines go a little step further. They, they first say, let's look at your PESI or your simplified PESI score. So let's kind of put your clinical context at the front of that decision. Um, and then from there, if you have both uh, high PESI score or high PESI score and then RV dysfunction and biomarkers, you fall into the high risk um, intermediate or high, I'm sorry, intermediate high risk. Or if you have either one, either dilation or biomarkers that are positive, you're in the uh, low risk, intermediate low risk group. So they're a little bit more refined in terms of how they classify um, these patients. Empirically, and I mean, when we are on our, our PE phone calls, what we're looking for always though is one, do they have any type of vital state, vital sign abnormalities? You know, it's a little bit more subjective, but you know, what's, what's their heart rate? How much oxygen are they on? Can they complete full sentences? How stable is their blood pressure? And then we're really looking to see what's the evidence of RV dysfunction. Um, usually if it's overnight, that's on a CT scan. And then if it's during the day, we'll get an echocardiogram. Um, and then it, are both biomarkers elevated and we'll get lactate also. And, you know, we could talk about some refinements, but that those are the heart of the patients that we're managing um, in the hospital. And, you know, there, there's a massive group as well, which is a smaller nugget of the PE patients, but um, that, that's kind of where the, the clinical side is, you know. No, that's good. I mean, I, I'm kind of glad you kind of got into the questions that you asked because, yeah, you start reading, you know, the European guidelines and you're going intermediate, high risk. All, it's a lot, of, a lot of information overload, I think, for, you know, uh, people who are, are not as smart as you, you know. <laughs> No, it's it's a lot of information and, and it's it's important to always kinda let's go to the real picture, the real clinical picture. Like, is the patient can they can they finish a sentence? I mean, that's a huge that's a huge like there's a lot of information in just that much, right? You know how you know how much are they struggling and everything, cause cause the clinical picture is what really wins, right? In this. Yeah. I mean that would and the best part of this was, you know, when we first started, we'd get these PE calls and Everything was about how much clot there was, saddle PE, clot in all the lungs. And then you'd say, okay, well, how is the patient? And they're like, oh, they're on room air, <laughs> heart rate 70s, blood pressure is normal. And you say, wow, I mean, that, that's 
pretty amazing that they're tolerating all this, you know, clout burden. But also on the other hand, it's hard to push yourself um, to get excited about an intervention with some risk, maybe not a ton of risk, but some risk in a patient like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're totally right. You know, our, our phone calls are really brief about the clout burden, really brief about it's more binary. Is there RV dysfunction or not? And then it's about the patient. And how's the patient doing? Again, that interview, you know that patient who can't finish a sentence is on a non-rebreather that you're going to have to escalate therapy. And, and on the other side, there's the stable patient who didn't know they even had a PE and, yeah. um, you know, and it's easier to make that decision. So, Oh, I, I've been amazed now that, you know, we see more of these PEs are focused on it. You know, before when PE intervention was a thing, I mean, we would see these PEs and report it and I didn't see the clinical picture, but now that I'm involved, you know, yeah, I, I would look at the CT scan and be like, oh, damn, you know, like this guy's going to look really bad. And you go and they're, they're, they're great. They're like, okay, well, I just came in because I just felt a little off, you know? Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, clot burden is not the, not the key, but it's all the, you know, physiologic effects of what that causes. Um, the, the cardiac enzymes you use is basically what, uh, uh, BNP and, and uh, tropes or anything else? Yeah, I mean, the main ones are BNP and trope. You know, we are starting to get into the weeds of the per consortium database, looking at how people manage PE across the nation. And, you know, it's infrequent that centers order both of those. Um, yeah. And, you know, PNP is a little bit more common than troponin also, you know, troponin falls a little bit more on the cardiac coronary side often. And so it's not always ordered, but we, we look at both of those, you know, and I, I, in my head, you know, what I've seen patterns of is that when the BNP, which is really a, a stretch of the myocardium, if the BNP is elevated, but not the troponin, uh-huh. um, usually I'm thinking more of a, a subacute PE. Now, again, this is empiric. I don't want anybody to think this is fact, but that's kind of been my observation. And when we see the troponin elevated, I'm, I'm thinking a little bit, usually it's a more acute PE, more a little bit more severe or early onset RV dysfunction. And when they're both elevated, you know that you're, you're a particularly higher risk acute PE patient. But Outside of that, you know, we've been making a push to get lactates as well. Um, and I think that's really helpful to start, again, um, triaging and risk stratifying the right patient for a more aggressive upfront approach. And when the lactate's elevated, you know, we know then any hypoperfusion to these organs is a sign that we might really need to do something to relieve, um, you know, the pressure on the RV. So we've been, cool. you know, we've been looking at getting lactates in addition to troponin, BNP, and those are really the big three. And, the nice part is the ER is so used to ordering those. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. if, you, I, if you remember when we were in the emergency room, they have the kind of their, yeah. yeah. And so the, you know, those are, those come back pretty quickly and you can really make some good decisions with that data. Yeah. And then do you feel, you know, echo versus CT to evaluate for RV? I mean, um, how often do you find a discrepancy of, of echo being more accurate than CT? Yeah, that's a great, great point. Also, we, um, we usually get both. We're a little bit spoiled uh, because our cardiology fellows are there all twenty four seven, and so they they kind of carry around these small little um, you know scanners to look at our, you know the function of the heart, and so or they'll bring the big machine down. So we usually get both. It's a limited view. It's usually a, a early early career fellow, a first year fellow. So I don't I'm not going to hate on them, but they do their best. Um, so we we use both. Um, you know I think that. You know, we, we reported actually recently we did a, a paper that was in vascular medicine looking at presentation and, and treatment differences between men and women with PE. And we found that um, women tended to have a little bit more often CT abnormalities for RV function, but not echocardiogram. Um, and I don't know if that, you know, th- this is, you know, we 
this is a large data set, so I don't have the granularity to tell you if, you know, the study was of the highest quality for the echocardiogram. But, you know, there, there is a little bit of a um, technician-dependent uh, approach for echocardiograms. You know, it's not always the easiest to open up the RV, and it's often that you kind of will get a short view of it and make it look worse than it is. And when it looks really bad, that's really easy. So, and, and then obviously the habitus part for women, that might have driven that a little bit. So, you know, once I see it on the CT scan, and it's really over, you know, one, the ratio of one to the LV, I, I feel pretty confident that I know there's dysfunction. The, you know, the echocardiogram gives you some more specific data, but I can't say that I act on anything more. You know, we'll report things like TAPSI and whatnot. So probably the most um, helpful thing is to have an echocardiogram once they're kind of nearing discharge to know what to surveil when you're in follow-up because it's much easier to get an echo for someone and look at RVSP and pulmonary hypertension um, then having to send it back to a scanner and, and look at the ratio again, just to get an RVLV ratio. And we wouldn't do that very often. Yeah. So I like that, you know, for follow-up. Yeah. I mean, totally. Ultrasound's always operator dependent. So you always have to yep. use that kind of variable, um, you know, with any ultrasound aside from echo too. Uh, you mentioned PERT. I mean, um, you were there, you know, as the developing of PERT team at, at your hospital, I'm sure. C can you kind of just go into how PERT or, or a, a PE response team uh, functions at your hospital? Yeah. So we, um, you know, I, I was, before I got to Mass General for my fellowship, I was at UCSF and um, it was interesting. We had, you know, no advanced therapies available. PE came in and anticoagulated them. And occasionally we'd get ones that were incredibly sick or had a lot of clot burden. We would actually um, ambulance them, can't even fly them down to San Diego. They had a um, big thromboembolic uh, program there and they'd either get a surgical embolectomy or some other advanced th treatment. So now it's 2021 and you know we manage all, I mean, most hospitals can manage all flavors of, of PE now. When you know this was starting at our hospital at Mass General, you know, I was a little bit on the cursory, like I said, I was manning the echo probe primarily, but, uh, you know, Ken Rosenfeld, Rick Chanik, uh, Rachel Rosowski, some of these, um, Chris Cabral, really a multidisciplinary group of people came together and said, no one's owning this condition yet. It's incredibly morbid and fatal. And so these patients come to the hospital, no one knows what's the right decision. And at the same time, more and more therapies are becoming available. Um, so why don't we approach this in a multidisciplinary way? Um, to make kind of our, you know, best clinically informed, whatever evidence is available decisions to help manage these patients. And you know, I think it's a, it's a really was a unique um, approach. You know, I think if we had started the field of coronary intervention with the cardiac surgeons as partners, I think we would be in a better place. We're not in a bad place right now. Maybe in peripheral vascular disease, if we started this in collaboration with vascular surgeons and interventional radiologists, all of us managing patients together, making treatment decisions together, we would all work together a little bit better. And so I think it was really special to start it in a multidisciplinary way because these were treated by all disciplines. Interventional radiology takes care of a lot of these hematology, pulmonary, eventually cardiac surgery, and then cardiology. And so, um, you know, it was, it was a special, special time for, uh, you know, a, a new kind of paradigm for treating a, a disease that's been around. Yeah. I mean, I think right now in medicine, I mean, what other official team do you really have that includes all these specialties that, I mean, it's, it's, it's no, well known that, you know, everyone works together here. Let's say in your hospital, uh, a patient comes in, you know, with this uh, intermediate high-risk PE, 
have uh, they're they're unable to complete sentences. They're on a non-rebreather. They come into the ER. How you know who gets called, and then who? How does like that function work? Is it is it just based on the day someone, or or how does the PERT team work um, at your institution? Yeah, so we um, you know moving on from that experience at Mass General, you know they promoted this PERT team. It became kind of a national paradigm for training PE. Um, and the PERC consortium was made. And, and right when this was all launching, my current partner over at Beth Israel, Brett Carroll, who's only a fellow, said, you know, we should have a PE team here. And so as a fellow, he was doing his vascular medicine training. He d- developed a PE team that he ran pretty much solo for over a wow. year. Um, and then he was actually a, a few years behind me in training at Mass General before we went across town. So we knew each other well and were kind of coming on at Beth Israel at the same time. And so I came over um, in 2018 and we kind of blew it up together. You know, he really had a mature system. I was there to help with the interventional stuff and to support the program. And so, you know, the paradigm, how we have it at Beth Israel, we call it, uh, we, of course, we have to change the name of everything. So we call it mascot team, but uh, it's a PE uh. team. <laughs> and so the we have a specific pager for any pulmonary embolism, almost like the um, ST elevation and my STEMI pager we have for coronary. So if a sick patient comes into the emergency room, um, they page the PE uh, pager, the PERT pager, and that goes to our 24-7 wonderful on-call cardiology fellow. Um, and then we always have a vascular medicine attending, um, kind of overseeing that fellow, usually not in the hospital, but on call. So um, Brett takes the majority of that. I take that call. Um, another one of our partners, Alex Schmier, as well. And so they'll initiate kind of the first line of consult where that patient who said intermediate high risk emergency room, the fellow will be down there, um, get the information, get the CT scan pulled up and sent out to the group, get an echocardiogram if they can and get some of that lab work. And then they'll have an initial discussion with the vascular medicine attending who's on call, whether it's um, Brett Carroll, myself or other partner. And then usually when there's any concern or question about whether we need to advance therapy outside of anticoagulation. So pretty much any intermediate high risk um, will have a phone call. And so we have like a text-based um, HIPAA compliant app that goes out to a group of about 20 people. And these are pulmonologists, hematologists, cardiologists, interventional cardiologists, our cardiac surgeon, um, who am I missing? Vascular medicine, critical care. So really diverse group. doesn't matter what time of day. So last night, actually, it was like 9 p.m. and we had a PE call. <laughs> and I texted them. I said, thanks, man. This is awesome because I was on call. Friday night. I was, yep. supposed, I was supposed to be off, but, yep. um, and so on the app, we'll be able again to share HIPAA compliant pictures of the echocardiogram. We'll get the MRN through an email to look up the CT scan, and then we'll have a conversation. And the fellow will kind of lead the conversation, say, here's the clinical data. Here's my exam. Here's the imaging and the lab results. And this is my empiric thought and what we think we should do. And we go around the horn. And everybody gives their opinion about where they think that stays. Yeah. So it's usually a 15 minute phone call. It's not then, you know, and we do about, I'd say in a busy week, three or four, maybe five a week at most. Um, We try to reserve them for ones really where we need to make a clinical decision, such as escalating to an advanced therapy. And um, I think everybody feels really like they share the responsibility of the patient and the decision. And when we make a decision, especially for us, on the vascular medicine side, you know, a lot of the notes and everything come in our name. We feel like we're representing a group and a, an informed decision that, you know, that, that we feel comfortable with. So that's great. It's, it's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's neat that you incorporate technology too into this because, um, you know, that ability to, 
share information with everyone at the same time really, really increases your efficiency. I mean, we, we use in, in, uh, in stroke intervention, there's a couple, you know, apps, even some that, that include AI to, you know, detect stroke and then notifies everyone on the different teams, right? Is there anything like that? Uh, like, are you, that, that's being developed in PE? Um, is this a, you know, PE specific platform or are you using like a, a normal kind of HIPAA compliant platform uh, and kind of tailor, tailoring it to your use like that? Yeah. You know, this is nothing fancy. This is just a, uh, HIPAA compliant platform. You know, the, the nice thing about our, we have a homegrown OMR, uh, which usually is bad in most, most worlds. And I've gone through several iterations and UCSF had a homegrown one, uh, partners, Mass General had an old homegrown one. And everybody moved to Epic and, and Beth this has been the holdout, but it's web-based. So you can pretty much pull up everything web-based, the imaging, everything, wherever you are, that's even awesome. on your phone. Yeah. And so that's the, really the sweet spot for this OMR. So we, we've been all right with that. And then usually we'll, we'll we're all really close, even across specialties. Yeah. So we text each other and whatnot if we need, but. No, no, that's great. I mean, that's, yeah. But I mean, being able to, you know, specifically for a case when you have a perk call, I mean. Um, uh, that's great that you have the communication between all the teams because there's a lot of people. And I mean, if you're calling each one separately, that takes a lot of time and even is just is an obstacle versus, you know, using technology to your advantage. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, uh, you, you know, you had a patient come in at 9, 8, 9 p.m. I mean, an age old question that a lot of people have is like, how emergent is a PE intervention? I mean, um, sure. The 3 p.m. PE case, that's that's easy to triage. Uh, 10 a.m., even easier. But what happens at 11 p.m.? Um, uh, you know, patients in the ER, how and when do you treat that patient? Yeah, that, that you know, moved a lot also. I think there's a couple, of, you know, considerations there. There's, you know, there's still a lot of variability in terms of who people are bringing for advanced therapy. You know, we're, we're pretty conservative in Boston and, and as a program itself, and we'll talk a little bit about the data, I think, later on, but we, you know, we're, we're taking those people who really are teetering on escalation of care. So needing intubation, potentially needing a presser, you know, in extremist. Um, and so those we're, we're not going to sit on and, and we'll, we'll take them to the lab. Yeah, we, I'm really close. Jeff Weinstein's our interventional radiologist who is incredibly involved. He's a fantastic guy. And a fantastic clinician. And, and to your comment earlier, Sabine, you know, it's so nice to see our radiology colleagues come unround and, you know, and, and have these like amazing clinical insights that you're not used to um, getting from the, the radiology side, because usually, like you said earlier, it's looking at the scan and, and kind of imagining what that picture looks like. And so Jeff is one of those guys who's like at the bedside. I, I worry about him because I feel like he's in the hospital um, and never not in the hospital, but he, um, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we switch off days who does those procedures, but Jeff will take anybody at any time. Um, and, and we try to do that same thing. Now, if you look at the trials, like if you look at the early ECOS trials, there, there wasn't, you know, a need to take them immediately. And there's a whole variation in terms of how sick they were. So, you know, there are times where, and even when I was in training where it's at 2am and say, we'll do it at 8am when the lab opens and yeah. you know, the patient's doing it right. So we can make, we can let them wait a little bit, but. I think as we, especially with the clot extraction devices for the sicker patients, you know, we know that probably getting to the lab sooner with those devices gives us a little bit better of an outcome. You know, once the thrombus becomes a little bit more organized, it's a little harder to get it all um, out in a, a single sweep. So 
uh, you know, we, we've been really trying to move. And, you know, the other thing that, you know, we can chat about at some point, but, you know, massive PE, PEs also is that paradigm shift changes also where we're not only sending them to surgery or, or full dose slicing them in the emergency room. We're, we're treating those at our institution like a, a heart attack or STEMI, where we're trying to get the lab activated within 30 minutes because not only do we have these, you know, cloud extraction tools, we also have new percutaneous mechanical support devices for people who are in shock to support the right ventricles. We've been doing more of those. And so we've kind of treated it, created a pathway where we can get them up, treat them like a real like shock patient, use the devices that we need to, to keep them, get them stable and then watch them. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I do think that's, you know, almost a topic in its own that, that we should talk about at some point, because, you know, people classify massive as like, okay, you know, those patients are dead or need surgery, but look, there's this whole new, you know, with, with all your, your, um, percutaneous devices and, and, and how technology has, has gone on. I mean, we can treat those patients and save them. Um, yeah. that's awesome. I mean, um, let, let's talk about, uh, yeah, you know, how often, uh, or, or what kind of systemic therapies are your patient getting other than anticoagulation? Um, are, are your patients getting TPA? Um, are you, um, holding off on that TPA and taking them to the lab? Yeah. So we, we really only give the majority of our lytics, we give our massive PEs who are unstable in the emergency room. And we don't think we can either get them on ECMO or to the lab and, and we'll lice them. So, you know, or someone who arrested, um, with either a documented PE or high suspicion for PE will lice. There is some data on half dose systemic lysis in some massive PE. Um, occasionally we've had some situations where, you know, they're not technically massive, but particularly sick or have other comorbidities where we don't think mobilizing them or bringing them to, uh, um, you know, an interventional suite makes sense and we'll give them half dose lytics. Um, it's, it's fewer and far between now. So most of the time, everything that we do is decided in the lab. Um, and so we'll bring them to the lab where only the systemic therapy that we really do is, uh, obviously heparin when they come in and mm -hmm. we used to do what we used to do is keep people on systemic heparin um and then tailor them over to transition them to lovenox once there was no plan to go for an aggressive therapy or an okay. invasive therapy we haven't found that um why well, lovenox no, i'm sorry lovenox not not uh, oral anticoagulation well well so we, we moved to oral anticoagulation the, the kind of our the goal that we're trying to do now is heparin is uh, you know unpredictable. It's, it depends on how attentive the nurses are. Um, there's always some patient care, you know, considerations that, you know, predict whether they're going to need a high dose or low dose or whatnot. So Lobonex is really probably the right systemic agent for everyone who comes in. Um, you get, you know, you get really good therapeutic anticoagulation. It's weight-based. You could check a quick factor 10, a level to make sure you're there, but, um, you know, you don't have to, to worry about some of those other considerations. Because the most important thing for any PE patient is that they are systemically anticoagulated. Um, and that's better than any device or treatment you're going to do, especially for a submassive. So we're trying now, we realize that we're not really having a lot of procedural issues on Lovenox. We could take them to do ECOS with Lovenox mm -hmm. already in their system. And that's what we were trying to avoid before. So we're really trying to move people on the systemic um, anticoagulation for right away with Lovenox. And then a quick transition to a NOAC um, or DOAC, however you like to term it, um, as soon as, you know, the decision to, uh, not intervene further. So if we're going to bring them for ECOS, we don't really want them on a DOAC 
Um, but once we're done with any plan for procedure or they didn't need one, we do that as quickly as possible as well. Okay. Yeah. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, in your practice, how many people are going for, uh, to, to the ones that go for intervention, how many are you going for catheter-directed lysis uh, versus, you know, this newer thrombectomy now um, in your practice at, at this current day? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of think about PE. I step back, you know, think, you know, they say there's like 600,000 to a million PEs a year, about 55% of them are not going to be um, massive or submassive. So you're kind of looking at a or chopping that in half, about 45% are going to be the ones that we're going to see hospitalized. 5% of those are going to be massive. They're going to need something. So either surgery, systemic lysis, or an intervention. And then you're stuck with this other chunk of 40 you know, percent. And, you know, if you take those 40 out of 100 people, let's say, um, you know, I think probably we're on the order of 5 to 10% are going to get an aggressive therapy at our institution. We, we really do know the anticoagulation, when you get to a good systemic anticoagulation that they're going to do well um, from the hospitalization standpoint. And this is where we need more data because, you know, advanced therapies have shown, um, and particularly in clinical practice, but also trials that we can make people feel better, but also stabilize them hemodynamically or from an oxygenation standpoint much quicker than with a systemic anticoagulation alone. What we haven't proven is what happens after hospitalization. And that's really where the money's at. If, if, if we have the data to say that upfront clot debulking um, is going to predict in six months that you are going to be a more functional person with less dyspnea, then I think we would be very, very aggressive upfront. We don't have that data. And the data that we have, you know, we have six-month follow-up data or long-term follow-up data from PITHO, which was um, TPA versus anticoagulation for some massive PE. And people who got full dose anti or TPA looked the same as anticoagulants at six months and beyond. They had the same echo characteristics. And again, it was a not a full cohort who had follow up out to that far. There was some there were some, you know, deficiencies in that study, but the bottom line of it was that it didn't really predict uh, you know, getting upfront clock to bulking or systemic lytics didn't predict that you were gonna function better at long term. And so that that's kind of where, you know, we are still lost. Yeah. So it's hard though. I mean, you know, it's a whole different game when you're taking out, you know, the clot. I mean, you're taking out, you know, a a physiologic part versus, you know, systemic, it's, it's breaking it up. So, um, any, any other, any data coming up or that you know of that, you know, will answer that question for us? Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, we don't know that, you know, if you take, I mean, granted, you know, even when we remove proximal clot with some of these extraction devices, there, there's still often some distal clot that we leave mm-hmm. behind. Totally. Um, but, you know, these a lot of these studies are, his, you know, what we consider more historical now, and a lot has changed in that time. Um, so, you know, that that may very well change. You know, again, EGOS yeah. and or um, mechanical thrombectomy might improve these longer term outcomes. We don't have that data yet. You know, So, you know, the... There are more data, probably the best, the most public data that are coming is HIPITHO, um, which is a Boston size sponsored with the PER consortium randomized trial where um, I think there's, it's a, an international trial. I think there's going to be 60 sites and they're going to randomize people with um, intermediate high risk PE to ECOS versus systemic anticoagulation. Um, cool. And they're looking, I think the primary endpoint at seven days um, post-discharge is death. Um, deterioration, escalation of care, and repeat, um, you know, VTE or pulmonary embolism 
Um, so, but they're going to have long-term data as well. So that, that's probably the, the best randomized data we're going to have. And hopefully we'll get a little idea of in the more contemporary picture when you do um, a, you know, upfront procedure like ECOS, what does the short-term and then the more long-term um, sequela look like? You know, from the clot extraction, the mechanical thrombectomy side, I don't know of any prospective randomized trial data that are currently um, at least public. There's, yeah, they're still new. And, and again, the the hard part, and if you look, you know, real deeper into this field, you know, the, the hard part is that the criteria for how these devices were brought onto the market really mm -hmm. kind of, we shot ourselves in the foot a little bit to get all the data that we really wanted because um, most trials, as you guys know now, are, are single arm trials, um, and the primary endpoint is a reduction in the RV to LV ratio um, within 48 hours. So, you know, historically, there was data that said RV to LV ratio greater than 0.9 or greater than 1 predicted 30-day mortality. So let's not worry about 30-day mortality. Let's just look at RV to LV ratio and the CT scan. Yeah. But in reality, we, we probably should have been focusing a little bit more on a hard clinical endpoint because we don't check follow-up RBDLV ratios on CT scan. Some of that data was, you know, 30 years ago and in a small patient cohort, not very diverse. And so it's hard to really hang your hat on that. But the FDA has kind of given all these kind of PE devices this faster pathway onto them to approval. So, and, uh, you know, that that has created just some issues with us having all the data we need. But on the, on the other hand, also, the investment to generate that data from the company side, it's harder to justify because, you know, you can say we're on the market, we're people getting good anecdotal results and maybe that's enough for us. Yeah. yeah. No, totally. I mean, um, speaking of, I mean, you brought ECOS up and everything. That's, is, is the majority of your practice in, in for, for P intervention, is it mostly lysis um, right now? Uh, is that what you're mostly doing? Yeah, so the patients, you know, again, we take those 40 out of 100 that have the some ask of PE, we end up taking the intermediate high risk and maybe five to 10 of those. We have a discussion, you know, and this has changed over the last year. We were a little bit newer into our mechanical thrombectomy experience. We were doing more ECOs to start and we've kind of now gotten into the, the thrombectomy part of our practice. So we have a discussion. We, we, we do like the mechanical thrombectomy for a couple of reasons. We like the fact that, you know, we get a pretty quick clinical improvement and also we can limit the time in the ICU, which has been really nice. So especially with COVID recently, when we're worried about our ICU beds, you know, we can get them out of the lab and either a brief stay in the ICU instead of sitting there with catheters or straight to the floor. Um, but from a, you know, technical standpoint, what I'm looking for and what we talk about is obviously proximal clot. So if we see a lot of proximal clot, saddle embolus, you know, main PA that's um, got thrombus, we, we tend to favor now a mechanical thrombectomy versus where you see a little bit more distal clot bilaterally and not as much central clot will we'll move a little bit more towards the ECOS catheter um, for those. And then also if, if we think that there's some more subacute thrombus, um, we've, we've kind of anecdotally felt that the clot retrieval devices haven't been as easy to function when there's kind of mixed thrombus. And so we'll tend to use ECOS in that situation as well, though some of the companies will tell you that they work just as well and or better than ECOS for subacute thrombus. Uh, of course. Um, yeah, so we're, we're kind of, we're, we're equal opportunists. We do a little bit of both and we, we do it case by case. Good. Yeah, kind of for our listeners, you know, briefly, I kind of want to talk about your technique of catheter-directed uh, when, when you're going in there. I mean, now most of these cases you're using, you know, kind of local or conscious sedation or, or are you going uh, with anesthesia? 
Yeah. So, you know, in, in the cath lab for us, everything we do is usually under, con you know, conscious sedation. Um, so, you know, most people get our usual protocol of some fentanyl over sed, and we don't take many people unless they're intubated already under GA. We do mainly, you know, we do access mainly from the groin still, but okay. um, a lot of people have done things differently, which I'm all for. You know, I think the groin access is just, you know, a little bit straightforward and easier. And especially when people are intubated, they don't love um, putting large catheters in their neck. You know, people have shown that you can do ECOS from brachial uh, arm veins and, and antecubital fossa, which is great. And ECOS from the neck isn't that hard either. Um, putting the Inari device from the IJ works, but again, it's a large, especially going with a 24 front sheath. Yeah, it's not really comfortable unless, you know, when, when they're intubated, we've done that. But, um, you know, we've had some pretty good successes from doing that from the groin. And, you know, that that, that tends to be tolerable to patients. So usually, well, usually we're using femoral venous axis. Everything I do is under ultrasound in the coronary, in the peripheral space, anything. So, you know, everything is femoral um, ultrasound axis. We usually... Um, we'll do some kind of pre-close either with a per-close or, or mattress sutures up front if it's going to be the large border axis, like for the Inari device. For ECOS, you know, we just pull and hold, so that's easy. Mm -hmm. Do you worry about doing, you know, do you do a pulmonary angio? Do you worry about increasing pressures? Or, or if you do, then what rate do you do to get decent pictures? Yeah, you know, we won't do pulmonary angios. I, um, I don't really worry too much about the... Um, you know, the, the angiogram causing any issue with the clot. I haven't seen it in any anecdotally or my own person, you know, in published literature that that's caused harm. I don't do them up front if they came just straight from the scanner and I kind of have an idea already of where things lie. You know, sometimes if we're doing the Inari uh, device or clot extraction, we'll, we'll take some puffs um, through the, the catheter, the large bore sheath. But I also like recently we had a case where it was suspected high risk, uh, suspected PE, but they were too unstable to go to the scanner. They weren't surgical candidates. Oh, so we yeah. actually did a PA gram up um, in the lab just to, you know, make a decision. A and then it was a PE, it was a pretty big PE. And so, you know, I'll, I'll stick, I love angled pigtails. I'll just stick an angled pigtail on the proximal PA, usually 12 for 20. Um, and we do everything under DSA. If they're intubated, we can't do a breath hold and we just increase the frame rate. Um, and usually just for the right lung, an AP, and the left lung, a little a LAO, like LAO 30. And, and that's enough to make a diagnosis. Um, the angle pigtail is nice because you can just flip it around to the, the LPA after and, and not have to put up a wire even. Yeah. And are you, you know, there's a lot of debate online, you know, do you have to use ECOS, you know, um, uh, or is a, is a, infusion catheter without, you know, the ultrasound, um, in it is, is, is that okay? Do you have any opinions with either of the two? Yeah. You know, we, we have a lot of familiarity, familiarity with ECOS and experience. So we tend to still use ECOS. It's FDA approved for this indication. So we kind of taught all our interventionists who don't do a lot of PE, how to put ECOS in so we can do it. You know, someone's available to do it every night. And so, um, we tend to use that device now. I got myself in a little bit of a situation because we actually looked at this in a study that was published in CHEST uh, about a year ago, comparing from claim national claims data. So you have to, with the caveat that whether the claim was correct or not, but you could actually identify from a billing claim whether a ultrasound-assisted uh, thrombolysis was done or or non-ultrasound-guided catheter thrombolysis. So, and we published a study that showed no difference um, between the two of them for in-hospital events. So I, I think that is you know, that gets brought up a lot. 
Um, there was a recent um, study called, uh, I think it was called Sunset PE, or it was, it was published or presented in, at Viva a few months ago that also didn't show any difference between catheter type. So I, I think it, it's up to people. I'm, I'm still a believer to some degree in, in ECOS and I'm familiar with the device. We tend to use that, but I don't, you know, my other colleagues have sometimes wanted to just put in a non um, ultrasound, just drip catheter. And that's totally fine with me when they do do that. Yeah. I think it comes down to familiarity. I mean, I don't feel strong either way, either. Our NAR lab is very familiar with ECOS and their, their new units too are really small. Um, yeah. uh, you know, they, they've definitely done a better job, but yeah, it is at no fault. Um, and not, you know, people that don't do it. I think, like you said, the data shows that it's fine. So, you know, the dose and duration, I know there's been a lot of of uh, different studies, you know, whether you're doing a, a short-term lysis or long-term, what do you use? Yeah, you know, that that's also moved a lot. I think our standard has always been 12-hour. And then, it, again, it's been a little bit variable, both in when we put in the catheters and then also with COVID, how long we want them to be sitting in the ICU with them infusing. So, as you know, you know, ECOS is invested in looking at, you know, different protocols and you can really go as, as short as four hours, two or four hours. Um, and, you know, the traditional ones were in 12 or, or even 15 hour protocol. So usually we'll do 12 hours, a milligram per um, hour per catheter. Um, so no more than 24 milligrams of TPA. But sometimes, you know, again, we'll, we'll do a shorter course, if, especially if we were a little bit more um, on the fence about the benefits of therapy and or and or concerned about any risks of TPA, we'll want to limit how much TPA we give. So we'll go down to a four hour protocol and just give um, yeah. a milligram per hour for four hours. And that, that happens sometimes as well. And uh, what's your endpoint? Um, are you measuring pressures at bedside up through the sheath? Are you bringing them back down? Yeah, that's, that's a little something that, you know, me and Jeff sometimes on the intervention, it's funny how Jeff on the interventional radio, they said sometimes wants to bring them back. And I was like, what are you going to do it differently? Like, yeah, yeah. you know, you're going to put it back in for another 12 hours. So my, my training and teaching was always that, you know, you complete the course and you're done. Um, and as long as they're better, which they almost always are, um, there's really no value at that point in doing anything more invasive. Um, exactly. I think, you know, we got a little bit used to with the Inari device now where, you know, we check pressures before and after cloud extraction. So it's, it's always nice to have that data. Um, and, and if it's someone with shock with PE, so the ones that we were talking a little bit about putting in mechanical support and whatnot, we'll, we'll leave a right heart cath, the PA line in there um, to manage them after they leave the lab just to watch. So, which is a really benign thing to do and it can be helpful, but more for the shock patient. Otherwise, we'll go back to an echo um, and use that really to measure pressures and RV function. And that's kind of the, the you know, long-term protocol to use the echo. Yeah. No, great. I mean, um, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little test question right now, Eric. Oh, I mean, no. You know, I'm going to test you here. So this always comes up on our, on our board. So uh, what, um, you know, specific heart block uh, do you have to worry about uh, 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 on EKG if you're going to do a pulmonary angio and why and what do you do? So we do this with the, we used to do this for the PA lines also. Um, if you have a bundle branch block and, and particularly if you have, you know, there's left and right bundle, but if you tickle the bundle with your catheters, you could put them into complete heart block. And so we used to, as fellows, we'd always have to make sure that they had the temp pacer pads in the room if they had our, uh, a bundle branch block on their EKG so that you could temporary pace them if you do end up causing block. I can't remember the last time I've done it. I know yeah, probably it right? happened on Monday or, you know, <laughs> it's now funny, that it always, 
it comes up and they always say, I, I can you even remember the last time that ever happened, you know, that, that this left bundle branch, then you cause a right with your wire. And, and yeah, I mean, yeah. um, keep in well, mind now that we talked about it, but, um, yeah, no, um, uh, good job. You passed your test. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's you guys, you know, the, the teaching is the temporary pacing wires. Um, if you know before, but you know, thankfully knock on wood, it hasn't happened to us and, and, it, and I'm glad it's never happened to you. Yeah, thank you. You know, now you've mentioned, you know, these patients in shock and, and you have these devices to, to uh, even treat these patients. I mean, is surgery even necessary now, surgical embolectomy? I mean, is that just um, not really needed for these, these, these uh, groups of patients uh, with our technology now? Or, or um, you know, is it still something that would be, you know, pretty mainstay? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's never going to have a role, but I, I definitely think that is changing a lot. You know, we saw this again in the coronary world, what, what was necessary for surgery and then what we could do percutaneously. And again, there's all the interesting part about PE patients is they come in all flavors. You know, you get the 30 year old female who's, you know, smoking and taking a birth control pill and just so happens come in with a big PE. And then you get the 75 year old who has three forms of cancer and you know, you don't know what's going to the brain and they're here in the extremis with the massive PE. And those are very different patients and those can both come in at the same time and the same day, you know, it's very likely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's, what's unique about PE is it, it's not, you know, ageist, if you may, I'll take any age down. But, um, so, you know, I think that, uh, what we've tried to do, you know, we have, um, ECMO at our, our institution and we, we cannulate for ECHO in our cath lab. Um, so if, if it's, especially during the day, if there's someone who's really sick, who could come in and we could get them on ECMO, that's our, that's our hope now is to stabilize those incredibly sick ones on ECMO. And then we're moving towards whether we can do clot extraction, maybe with a NARI, um, and then let them rest in ECMO and, and decannulate them versus going for an open sternotomy surgery. Now, there's always situations where if they're particularly young, um, you know, in, in severe shock and they have really central clot and our surgeon is, you know, um, available and, and willing to take them. We'll, we'll try to do that. And also sometimes if it's clot in transit, particularly if there's a, a PFO or any type of intraatrial shunt where the clot can cross over and cause arterial embolism, we'll bring them to the OR. Um, but even intracardic um, clot is going to change, you know, clot in transit, you know, and already now got approval for clot in transit. And I think that, you know, the rest that we need to send people for surgery sometimes, um, you know, is, is better for a lot of these patients, not all of them, but those high risk ones, you know, we have more options for them. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think it, it's a good time in, in, um, you know, in this space because we've got a lot of, a lot of development going on at the same time and they're really complementary. so that I think that what we were doing in the past is going to change, um, in these next few years. Totally. No, I mean. You know, Eric, I, I learned a ton right now. This is this is super awesome. I mean, anyone, you know, starting PE intervention, do you have any uh, words of advice or, or words of wisdom, um, you know, to the listeners out there? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the take home here, a couple of things, I would say, spend a little time with the literature. You know, I mean, I think it's really an interesting space and the literature has come a long way and the data is really helpful in terms of how we practice. Um, Jay Geary, the American Heart Association, Jeff Barnes wrote this incredible, you know, kind of 
consensus document on treatment that came out a little over a year ago in, in circulation. And it's been kind of a, a fantastic guide and summarizes the literature really well. The other thing is learn the patients really well. I mean, the, the endovascular techniques are not hard, as everybody knows, and they're fun and they're cool. Um, but learn the patients, try to get a good hold of who you think is going to benefit from these treatments. You know, I mean, I think our, you know, gut response sometimes is to try to take as many people to the lab as we can. Um, but you're going to run into people who have a complication, unfortunately, whether it's an uh, intracerebral hemorrhage or, you know, bleeding from the groin or whatnot. And so learn the patients. They're the ones that are really going to respond based on what we know about these therapies. And, um, and then only last thing I'll say is that the beautiful marriage of specialties here is really unique. And I think it's really, as we are all compensated more similarly now with being employees of hospitals and whatnot, I think this whole division in specialties is hopefully going to be in the past. So this is a great space where everyone, you know, my close friend is, you know, an interventional radiologist, a hematologist and a pulmonologist taking care of these patients. And, um, you know, I, I think that's a, such a unique part of this. So involve your colleagues when you're building a program. It's amazing how everybody complements each other. Um, set up a follow-up clinic, make sure that you realize the care for these patients continues after the hospitalization. And then you're going to put yourself on the map because this is a hot field right now. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Eric, thank you so much. I mean, this has been truly exceptional. Um, uh, we're really, really happy to have you here today. And and honestly, the field of P intervention, it's it's at its inception now with all these new devices. And I'm really excited to see, you know, all the great stuff that you're going to come out with and, and help uh, lead the field further. So thanks again for coming on with us today. Thanks, Sabine. And uh, thanks to Backtable for inviting me to do this interview. And my friend, I'm hoping I get to see you in person soon. No, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks, Eric. 